it's time to jump into the Himikuda and fight some angry doors in this classic movie from the late 70s that scared all kinds of bodily fluids out of me. And it will you too. Especially if you're a boy. So we're going to jump through that time portal and go back and visit the extravaganza that is 1979's Phantasm. Let's go. You have killed and you will kill again. Welcome back to what I like to call your show, House of Wax. I'm your host, Rick, and I'm here to take you through the fear and the love that I have for these classic movies that are the building blocks of horror. And this time, we're hitting close to home, because when this movie came out, I was nine years old. And this movie still has a power that just kind of looms over me. Of course, nowadays, it's like an old, long-lost friend, and you enjoy it coming around, but... In the back of your mind, there's still a little something there that you're still afraid of. And why is that, you ask? Well, it's the overall nature of this film. Really makes it unique. In horror movies before, you kind of get the monster, the bad guy that's chasing the victims. And they're usually adults. I mean, Dracula, werewolves, serial killers, they all went after adults. But in Phantasm, we have a strange tall man who will stop at nothing to get his prey who happens to be a kid. And he's never met him, he doesn't know him, but he's after him all the same. And to a kid that's close to the same age as the kid in the movie, this was absolutely terrifying. And it's full of dreamlike sequences and very uncomfortable atmosphere. And it's written and directed by one of the best in the business, Don Coscarelli. Heavily influenced by Ray Bradbury's story, Something Wicked This Way Comes, and also the teen angst and the adults not believing the teens when they realize something is wrong, such as Invaders from Mars. Then you also get a heavy dose of Dario Argento Suspiria, because explanation really just doesn't mean squat. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, this is Phantasm. Phantasm. The delusion of a disordered mind. A phantom. A spirit. A ghost. Tommy's gone. <laughs> it's hard to believe. It was a good idea not to let your little brother come to the funeral. Hey, I don't like this place. Something weird is going on up there. Okay, I believe you. What we gotta do is lay that sucker out flat and drive a stake right through his goddamn heart. gonna run that tall bastard straight down to hell. You play a good game, boy. But the game is finished. Now you die. From 
the very opening of the movie where it's just a black screen and the red letters come up spelling phantasm to the very uncomfortable music that's building in the background you're already starting to get unnerved it's set up perfectly and much like the music or the lack of that we have here it's kind of reminiscent of what we did at the beginning of texas chainsaw where it's really just a lot of noises that just make you sit in your seat and grab the sides of your chair And then we jump straight to a graveyard with a bass player of Molly Hatchet's getting on with an incredible Stella. How good is it going? Dude's even lost a shoe. That's how good it's going. <laughs> and right at one minute into the movie, sex scene. The 70s were great. So before flirting with disaster comes back for an encore, this lady in lavender pulls out a knife and just jabs it right into his heart. And luckily he dies immediately because he wouldn't want to see what happens next because this lady in Lavender starts changing into an old creepy dude. Now, before we get much further, I'm gonna tell you about a theory that I have about this movie. To me, everything comes back to Phantasm. Almost every idea that's in any movie kinda came from this movie. My theory, my rules, I'm making them up. So either it leads back to Phantasm or it ripped Phantasm off. That's my story. I'm sticking to it. So this scene where Molly Hatchet's getting it on with a lady that turns into a dude would shock the world, but not in 1979, but in 1992 with The Crying Game. See where I'm going with this? They totally ripped that idea from Phantasm. Remember, my theory. I can think what I want. So now back to the story. It's a couple of days later and we get the introduction of Jody and Reggie and they're outside the funeral home. They're old buddies and Tommy, the guy that was killed, Molly Hatchet, uh, is an old buddy as well. And they're at his funeral and they're talking about how horrible what happened to him is and you get a disconnect right here at the beginning. Hell of a way to end a trio. <laughs> it's hard to believe. I killed himself. Hey, I, uh, I'm gonna go visit somebody. Uh, I'll catch inside. Then Reggie says that Tommy killed himself. They made it a suicide. But we know better. So how do you make this look like a suicide? I mean, Molly Hatchet's pants are down, his shoe is off, and a bunch of stab wounds? This is exactly the kind of disbelief that just keeps you running through this whole movie. It's kind of like the last 15 minutes of the last Lord of the Rings movie where they keep changing the ending, right? Same thing here. You don't know which direction to go. And here's the thing, folks. We're three minutes into the movie. So at this point, Jody's just killing time, walking around in the funeral home, and I think he's gonna go down and see where his father's buried. But at the time he's there, he hears a noise that sounds like a rabid badger, and he starts looking around, and it just gets real suspenseful. And then we cut outside, and we meet Michael, our 13-year-old boy that we're gonna take this journey with. Typical boy riding his dirt bike around on the funeral plots. Yeah, that's what I used to do. It seems harmless though. I mean, if Kelly Leak can drive his bike out on the baseball field in Bad News Bears, I guess you can drive a dirt bike over the plots in the graveyard. Why not? And while he's riding the bike stalls and he stops to re-crank it, while he's trying to crank it, he hears that same rabid badger sound as well and sees something move behind a tombstone. 
Then it just cuts right back inside. Jody's still walking around. He sees a figure moving, so he goes and tries to see what's going on, and we get a piece of jump scare mastery right here. The funeral is about to begin, sir. Then we cut to the actual funeral of Tommy, and we get some overdub of why Michael's not in there at the funeral at the time, why he's out just kind of running around. But when they proceed to take the funeral outside and bury Tommy, Michael is off in the bushes with a pair of binoculars so he can see what's going on. See, he still is interested in what's happening, but he just doesn't want to be there, I guess. And they back the hearse up to the place where they're going to bury Tommy, and all the pallbearers grab the casket, and there's six to eight guys grabbing it, and they're kind of bringing it out of there. It's really heavy, and they, you know, proceed on with the funeral. And after the ceremony is done, everybody else leaves, and Michael stays behind, and he keeps watching. And what he sees is pretty dang alarming. So yeah, <laughs> this funeral director guy just picked the casket up by himself, throws it back in the hearse, slams the door. Pretty crazy. Then we start easing into a theme, the theme song that you're going to hear throughout this movie that is haunting. To me, it's just one of the greatest horror scores ever. Heavily influenced by Goblin. I think you remember me talking about Goblin before, did all the Italian tracks. You can hear that in this, but this is very haunting. It stays with you. I think it's a great track. is playing Michael is walking up to a house and there's a sign out front with a big with a big red hand on it literally get your palm red here and he knocks on the door and it's answered by this slice of teenage wingtip blouse wearing angel and he's like hey baby and he wants to talk to the girl's grandmother so they go in this room that's very dimly lit, just a few candles and a couple of lights that hang down, looks like they used to hang over your table at the old Pizza Hut back in the day. And then we meet Grandma, who if I didn't know better, I would say was played by today's version of Ozzy Osbourne. And then we go into some details of Michael scared that Jody's gonna take off, right? So he's given the spill of what he's afraid of. And being that both of his parents are dead, he's afraid of being alone. And then Ozzy, and her granddaughter, who actually does all the talking, Ozzy never says a word, which, just like today, again, hello. And then Michael tells him about what he saw at the graveyard, and it cuts back to another scene of kind of what we saw earlier with the tall man picking up the casket, putting it in the car. Michael gets on his bike and starts driving off. Then the tall man's standing there, and he sees Michael, and he uses the force and uh, knocks Michael off the bike. And Michael picks himself back up and takes back off. That's the kind of power we're dealing with here, folks. And then our fox gives Michael some directions that he's still just a little too young for. Put your hand in the box. And then the box latches onto Michael's hand and it won't let go. He's freaking out. He says it hurts. He's going all kinds of crazy. And the girl keeps telling him, don't fear. Don't fear. Fear is the killer. So when Michael starts realizing that, starts letting off, he can get his hand back out of the box. Then Michael pulls out some money and puts it on top of the box, and the box and the money disappears. I think Ozzy and the granddaughter ought to take this on the road, man. They could make a killing. So now, with no real reasoning, 
the granddaughter decides to go up to the funeral home, the Morningside Funeral Home, and sneak around, I guess, and see what's happening. But more of that later, because right now, prepare yourselves to get entertained by Jody sitting on the front porch with a derby on and some red wing work boots, and then Reggie pulls up in an ice cream truck, and they just start jamming on the front porch. I wish I was making this up, but they were making it up. song we get a little foreshadowing of what's to come for us later on because Reggie pulls out his tuning fork and says we're hot as love then he strikes the tuning fork to tune his guitar and you see him take his fingers and quiet down the tuning forks and then from the transition of the tuning forks being silented it goes right to the sound that's inside the funeral home where our granddaughter is walking around I don't know if a lot of people ever picked that up but the striking of the of the tuning fork and the tone that it's putting out and it turns into the tone that's in the funeral home just some cool ideas that may have got overlooked anyways Ozzy's granddaughter walks up to this door that apparently has a picture of the pep boys over the top of it and it cuts away, you hear a scream, and that's the last we see of her. And then later that night, Jody goes to the bar to find a little action. And now that theme that we heard earlier, the, the, the Phantasm theme, is now a disco song. I love how they kind of sneak that in there, too. But yeah, it's the same theme, it's just discoed up. And inside the bar, who does he see? That's right, Arstella, the lady in lavender from the very beginning of the show. And you're already going, oh no, don't do it, dude. Well, they walk outside, and instead of getting in a car and going somewhere, they decide to walk. Well, where do you think they're walking to? The graveyard, of course. Mind-boggling. And the thing about this, too, is I guess, I guess it makes a lot of sense, though, if you're going to kill somebody, because then you don't have that far to carry them. So now, while Jody is tuning up his instrument... You got Michael that's still kind of watching from afar, right? You can't get away from this kid. And while he's standing there and he's watching, he gets attacked by a Jawa. That's right, Star Wars. I'm looking at you. Yes, I know, I know. Star Wars is 77, Phantasm 79. But realistically, both movies are being shot at the same time. Star Wars came out first because it's a major motion picture. Phantasm is not. So here's what I think. I think George Lucas rushed the production of Star Wars to get it done first because he wanted to show that... They had this idea first because he knew that Phantasm was using them. So there you go. That's my theory. Case in point, think about this. How many times has George Lucas gone back and tried to change things in the original movie that he feels like he just wasn't happy with? More times than Samantha Fox has taken her clothes off. How many times has Phantasm been messed with for its imperfections? That's right. Oh, and Greedo shoots first. You're raping my childhood, Lucas. Anyways, we get Michael running past Jody at full speed, screaming like Banshee. And we get some and we get some unreal comic relief right here. Wait here, it's my little brother. I think he's got some kind of a problem. Yeah, Jody talking with panties in his mouth. That should be a can your movie do that itself. And then you got Jody running and trying to pull up his bell bottoms, trying to catch up with Michael. And when he finally does catch up with Michael. We get a little banter back and forth, and Michael spits out something that should be a rap song. 
was it was little and brown and low to the ground. And then Jody just gives Michael the keys to the car and says, drive home and I'll meet you there later. Yeah, this has got to be a dream. And Jody goes back to find the lady and she's gone. Then we cut to back home and Michael's in bed and we get a terrifying dream sequence that to me when I think of this movie, this is what I think of. This scene will always be a pinnacle of horror for me. It's, it's so stylistic, so bizarre, and totally unforgettable. The imagination of a boy, and we all do this, boy, girl, pony, whatever. We are so scared of what we don't know or we don't understand. And what this movie does so well is it blurs that line between reality and dream state. The nightmare of a guy that Michael has only seen once, yeah, that hits home. Once something or something scares you in this manner in real life, the monster grows. In real life, they're probably just a person. But in your mind, that's where the monster feeds. It's the unknowns that keep us awake at night. Anyways, back to the story. Jody goes back to the bar again the next day, and he's trying to find the Stella that he picked up. But there's no sign of her anywhere. Now we get a shot of Michael standing downtown, just hanging out, being a kid, and he sees this tall man come walking down the other side of the street, and it goes right past Reggie's ice cream shop. And Reggie is loading ice cream in the truck, and we see the tall man stop right at the back of the truck because that door is open on the back of the truck and you can see the cold air coming out of it. And the tall man stops and just kind of does his hands out like this. And then he starts making a face like Commandant Lassard does in Police Academy when that, uh, that prostitute's inside, <laughs> inside the podium when he's trying to make the speech. Yeah, that kind of face. Seriously, he freezes in place, stands there for a little bit, and then he just puts his hands down and walks off like nothing ever happened. <laughs> it is so bizarre. So at this point, Michael decides he's gonna go check out the funeral home. So he breaks an entering, goes inside, and you get some messing around, hiding in places here and there. And then he walks down that hallway that we said that had the door that's got the pep boys over it. And he gets down to the door, gets scared, and he takes off. And right here we get what this movie is probably known for the most, and that is its balls. Yeah, you see a silver spear come around a corner and it's coming right at Michael. And Michael ducks down on the floor and it goes right past him. And Michael jumps back up and takes off. And then Michael's so busy looking back, making sure this thing's not coming after him, that he runs into the groundskeeper, I guess is what this guy is. And we get an incredible scene right here that can only be described as one thing, and that is, can your movie do that? How do they do that anyway? So now we have a struggle between Michael and the groundskeeper. The groundskeeper's got him from behind, he's got his arm around him like this. And then we see one of the balls coming back towards them, and a couple of spikes have come out of the front of it. So this thing's getting ready for action. I've been trying to figure out who this groundskeeper looks like. He looks a little bit like Meatloaf, but really he looks like Beauregard. He was the janitor on The Muppet Show. Matter of fact, he looks just like him. Well, Michael starts just taking a big chunk out of his arm, just biting into his arm, and we don't pay any attention to what's happening, but Michael bites, Michael jumps out of the way, and the ball hits, hits Beauregard right in the head. And you think it's done. Then the drilling starts. 
And this is so outlandish, you almost kind of laugh at it. I mean, it's kind of comical, but you can't take your eyes off it. It's, it is so unusual looking because now the back of the ball has opened up and when it's drilling into the dude's head, it's spitting the blood out. And I mean, not just a little, I'm talking about a fountain of blood coming out of this thing. So it's shooting the blood out at least six feet away and it's just draining dude completely out of blood. And then the body falls to the floor and let's just say he lets himself go. And you always hear about when people bite the bullet, they kind of lose control of bodily fluids. Well, this is the first movie I've ever seen that actually kind of shows that. And what is so great about this movie is there is no explanation of what just happened. It just happened. That's so much of what I love about this flick. I mean, this is a scene where you're totally invested, you're totally wrapped up into it, and it has gained your attention because, again, it's showing you something you haven't seen before. And I still think the effects work good because you're talking about a movie with a lot of dream state things going on. So anything can happen. Can your movie do that? Well, if you're Wes Craven, you can, but we'll talk about that after a while. So now Michael is totally terrified of what he's seen. He stands up, he goes to walk down the hall, and down at the other end is guess who? That's right, the tall man, standing there looking as creepy as ever. And in order to get out, Michael has to walk back down the hallway towards the tall man to one of the exits, and the tall man is walking at the same distance towards him. And Michael gets to a point to where he just takes off running, and really, this chase scene is as horrifying as what we see in the first Texas Chainsaw. He's right behind him. He's grabbing the sounds that are going on. It is quite terrifying, folks. Then Michael gets to this big metal door and he shuts the door behind him. Michael shuts the gate on it, thinking that he's safe, and he keeps hearing a noise. And he looks around, and the tall man's hand is trapped in the door and the fingers are sticking out on the other side where Michael is. So the tall man is still trying to grab Michael through the door with his hands reaching through. And Michael pulls out a knife and he chops off the tall man's fingers and we get blood. Yellow blood. And then the fingers fall on the ground and they're flopping around like that fish at the end of that uh, Faith No More video. Michael being back home and he's on the staircase and it's got some carpet on these steps that looks like a jacket I'm sure I saw Lenny Kravitz wear back in the day and he's got a little wooden box that he's put the finger in and a shotgun in his lap so yeah dude's terrified the next morning Jody sees him sitting there and you get the explanation of Jody trying to say hey here's what I saw here's what's happened he even shows the finger to Jody and Jody's on board okay I get it and then Michael tells Jody about what he saw with the tall man picking up the casket and putting it back. So Jody says, all right, we're going to go check this stuff out. So in the process, then he realizes the box that's got the finger in it isn't moving anymore. So he opens it up, and we just get some wackiness. Yep, that finger turned into a giant fly with big red eyes and huge pointed teeth. And it flies around, it lands on top of Michael's head. So Michael makes a daring move of trying to take it and he catches it in the strongest thing you can find, a denim jacket. And this is, again, quite comical, but it's pretty well done because you're basically working with just a denim jacket in your hands and you're making it act like it's got superhuman strength and it's throwing them everywhere across the room, down the staircase, breaking some of the banisters off. 
It's a lot of fun. He gets the denim jacket downstairs and they decide they're gonna try to run this thing down the garbage disposal and get rid of this. So they're trying their best. They get it shoved down in there. They hit the switch and they think it's done. At this point, Reggie comes in the house. He's like, hey guys, what's going on? And then all of a sudden the fly jumps out and starts going crazy again. Then the fly comes back out tries to attack Michael again, then Jody decides to take it stab of getting rid of this thing. And now they're loading up the guns because they're getting ready for the craziness ahead. So Michael is supposed to stay home and Jody's gonna go and see what's happening at the funeral home. And Jody crawls through the same window that Mike broke out earlier when he went, and when he gets inside of there, he gets attacked, and at first you kind of think it's a real tall figure back there in the corner with a hood on, but really it's just a Jawa, and it's making Tasmanian devil sounds, and it jumps on Jody's back, and I love this shot because Jody takes the pistol and just takes care of business. He created a new meaning for the word headshot. And then Jody just gives it a couple of more shots and just back at the window and he's getting out there. He's already seen enough. Now Jody's on foot, but then we see the hearse back behind him crank up and it's coming after him. He's running out of the front gate and the car goes flying past. He jumps back up and another car is coming and he sees the headlights, so he's ready to attack and ends up being the Hemikuda. Michael is driving the car and comes to pick him up to take him back. And the hearse is on its way right back. So they jump in the car and they take off. So now they're being chased by this hearse and they start realizing that there's nobody driving this hearse. It's just kind of driving itself. They don't see anybody in it. So they decide to start blasting it with the shotgun with a couple of big blasts. It runs off the road and wrecks and they go back to check out what's going on. When they get there, they open up the car door, and it's one of those drawers that was driving the car, so you couldn't see it. I'm still trying to figure out how it could even see when it was driving. But anyways, they pull the hood back, and it's Tommy, the guy that died at the beginning, Molly Hatchet. He's the dwarf, and he's got all this yellow drool hanging out of his mouth. It's pretty wicked. So somehow, the guys call Reggie to come out there. They go to a payphone that's just out in the middle of nowhere. Reggie shows up in the ice cream truck, and they pull Tommy out, and they're going to put him in the back with all the ice cream. And they even mention that even though he has shrunken down in size and it's still Tommy, dude still weighs like over 200 pounds. So even though he's really small, he's still really, really heavy. And Reggie is really concerned, but not about what you think he's concerned about. This guy's not going to leak all over my ice cream, is he? So the guys get together and start working on a plan of what to do at the funeral home. And then Mike asks, is this a possibility that their parents could be some of these creatures as well? Pretty creepy. And then Reggie comes up with a great plan. What we got to do is we got to snag that tall dude and stomp the shit out of him and we'll find out what the hell is going on up there. And then Michael brings him back down to reality with some 70s jive. You gotta be shitting me, man. That mother's strong. So at this point, Jody is trying to decide to keep Michael safe. So he's wanting Reggie to take Michael to Sally's place, which is an old antique shop. So inside, Michael's looking around at all the junk that people pay way too much for, and he sees some old pictures. And he picks up one of the pictures and he's looking, and it's at the old funeral home. But it's back in like the 1800s. And he notices there's a guy driving a carriage. It's like a, a horse back in the day, but it's horse-drawn. And he sees the guy that's on there, and the guy in the picture turns and looks at Michael. And it's the tall man in the picture. And after he looks at Michael, he turns back and freezes again. And then Michael finds Sally and says, you gotta take me back home. And by the look of Sally, I would have said the same thing. Now back home, Jody is just chilling out, relaxing with his head back on the recliner. 
And when he shuts his eyes, his he wakes up and he's in the funeral home. And his back's against the wall, against a, a bunch of the plots there. And one of the plots opens up and some of the Jawas reach down and grab him and start pulling him up in it. And then he wakes back up. Again, this whole dream sequence thing that's going on, it just keeps you guessing what's real, what's not real. All that kind of good stuff. It's kind of like another movie that came out about six years later about a guy that attacks you in your dreams. Can't think of the name of it right now, but... Anyways, we'll get to it later. Then we cut back to Mike, and he's riding a VW bug with the two girls that are taking him back to his house. And on the way there, they see Reggie's truck is flipped over. It's on the, in the middle of the road. Headlights are still on. So Michael tells him to stay in the car. He's going to go look. And when he goes to look, he finds that the padlock has been broken off the back of the freezer, and the freezer is now empty, and Reggie is nowhere to be found. And I don't see how Tommy would be that hard to find because a frozen dwarf, I imagine, couldn't get around very fast. And then Mike gets back in the car and tells the girls to floor it. And in the process of getting back in, they start hearing something outside trying to get in the car door, but they don't see anything. The locks are popping up on the car, but they're just still just sitting there like, what? What's going on? Next thing you know, a door flies open. The little dwarfs are coming in, attacking everybody. One gets in the back seat with Michael, and it shoves his head through the back window, and Michael falls out of the VW, and then all of a sudden the VW just starts taking off down the road. I would love to see shots inside the car at this point because I want to know who's driving. I mean, is Stella driving? Because the car's not even cranked. It's just going down the road where I didn't hear it crank. <laughs> it's mysteriously going down the road, and I just wonder who's driving. I mean, is a Jawa driving this one too? Don't know. Like to find out. So Mike runs back home, and when he gets there, he tells Jody about the girls are now gone. So Jody decides it's time to TCB, take care of a little business down there at Morningside. So he takes Michael upstairs, locks him in his bedroom, and he's heading to Morningside. And then Michael goes full MacGyver on us right here. Or maybe MacGyver wasn't even, well, MacGyver wasn't a thing at this point. So maybe MacGyver kind of ripped this movie off. Just saying, folks, just saying. But anyways, Michael takes a hammer, a shotgun shell, and a thumbtack, and some scotch tape, and he blows a hole through the door so he can get out. Again, dream logic. I really doubt that would work that way. But anyways, doesn't matter. And now Jody is gone, and Michael runs to grab the pistol and head out that direction too, but... And then the tall man is standing there, and he opens up his hand to show Michael that all of his fingers are there. Kind of reminds me of another movie where a guy like was in a dream and he like takes his finger knives and he cuts a couple of fingers off and then he holds his hand up again and they're all there. Just saying. Can't think of the name of the movie right now, but you get the point. The tall man then grabs Michael and then takes him and carries him outside and throws him in the back of the hearse. And I love this shot. It's an easy effect of how they did it, but it's pretty effective because you see him literally lift him up. Even though it was basically done with a dolly, I still think it looks great and it's kind of showing just the power that the tall man has. Meanwhile, Jody is pulling up at Morningside and the tall man's not far behind him. He's on his way that direction too. And Michael's in the back of the car and he pulls out a pistol and he blasts out the back window and he also shoots out one of the rear tires and he just jumps out of the rear because seatbelts were for wussies back in the 70s, man. Then the hearse loses control and it runs off into a field and it explodes and it goes up in flames just like Vanilla Ice's acting career. And Mike then goes into the funeral home. And here we get a shot of the ball that's flying around. We get some cool infrared shots of some POV shots of what everything looks like. And I think it's a really cool looking effect for the time. And then when Michael is walking through the corridor, he sees his dad's casket out in the middle of the floor. And he decides he's going to build up the courage and look inside of it. And when he looks inside, there's nothing in there. His worst nightmare just came true. 
and he yells out and when he does the ball hears him yell and it comes right after him and while he's standing there in fright Jody steps up with a gun and shoots the ball and it gets close and it just shatters. And then they're walking towards that corridor I was talking about where the door is. It's got the pep boys over it. And they walk up to the door and they get ready to go in because they know there's something behind here that's going to be the secret to all of this. And right when they go to reach, they get a jump scare because Reggie just comes out of nowhere and grabs them by the shoulders. And at this point, he's telling them that he found a bunch of the girls. He's turned them all free and they're all safe now and let's get it on. And they open up this door and they go inside. And there's all these containers against the wall, these black containers. And it's just a fluorescent white room. And there's these two metal posts that are on the floor and just a lot of vibration. You get this sound of just a heavy vibration going on in this room. So you're trying to figure out what the heck is going on here. Then Michael walks up to the post and he takes his hand. He remembers the, the sayings of Ozzy and his granddaughter or her granddaughter about don't fear, don't be afraid. So he sticks his hand in between the post and his hand kind of disappears and he pulls his hand back out and it's all intact so then he decides to do it again and when he does it pulls him in there and what this is is a portal it's a portal to another universe or another planet at least and michael is just hanging there in space and he's kind of seeing what's going on he's seeing this planet and it's got a red sky it's just desert land you got a bunch of jawas and the containers are laying down it's just a line of jawas and a line of containers and it goes off into the red sky this just stays with me. It's such an unusual look. I've never seen anything else really look like this, so kudos to you, Don Coscarelli. This is a killer scene. And while he's hanging there, all of a sudden he gets pulled back into our world by Jody. Jody just reaches in there, grabs him, and pulls him back out. And then Michael has an epiphany of what's really going on, and he tells us all about it. And then the lights go out. And then we get Michael flicking his bick and getting jumped by a shorty. And then out of nowhere, we cut to outside and Jody's wandering around outside the funeral home yelling for Michael and Reggie. Again, this dream state thing, anything can happen. Back in the room, the lights come back on and Reggie's in there by himself. Yep, it's just Reggie and his sideburns and his ponytail and these two posts that are there. And then he starts thinking about what we saw earlier with the tuning fork. So he decides to walk up to the, the portal and he's going to put his hands on the post and just see what happens. And outside while this is going on, Jody's still wandering around looking for everybody else. And back behind him, you see the lady in lavender back there and she's got a knife ready. And she's just waiting for him to get close. And then when Jody gets close enough and she gets ready to pounce on him, that's when Reggie puts his hands on the post and she just freezes. And then we see Reggie just get blown back on the floor. The power that came off of those posts just knocks him back. And then it creates a vacuum. It starts turning everything into right opposite. It starts sucking in all of those canisters that are in that room. Not to mention you get to see a big red place all across Reggie's head here because one of those canisters in one of the other shots had actually hit him in the head. But you can kind of see it's just a big red spot on his head. That's right. Reggie turned the portal from suck to blow. And he eases his way out of there while this is going on and he shuts the door behind him. But the power of this portal keeps getting stronger and stronger and the wind keeps building up outside. So now everything's going on outside of Morningside Funeral Home. And all the guys are wandering around trying to find each other. And Reggie, being the ladies man that he is, sees the lady in lavender laying there on the ground. So he goes to help her up and she stabs Reggie. 
And while Reggie's laying there, she changes back into the tall man right before his eyes. And he's just standing there over Reggie looking at him. And the ice cream man's best buy date has just expired. And then the funeral home starts looking like an iron butterfly light show at one of their concerts. And Jody and Mike get back to the house. And they're coming up with a plan of how to get rid of this tall man for once and for all. They're going to try to catch him in the old mining shaft. Conveniently placed close to town. So we get Michael going back to the house to get all kinds of ammo. And Jody's going to go camouflage the area. That way it'll be easy to trap him. So Michael starts going through the house, locking all the doors, locking all the windows. And when he gets to the second window, guess who's there? So now Mike is sneaking through the rest of the house to try to stay hidden. And he goes towards the back door. And the back door just busts off of his hinges, comes flying at the camera. And there's the tall man standing there, as cool as can be, man, with his hands behind his back, looking super powerful. He's looking Darth Vader cool. And he says that line we've been waiting for. <laughs> Boy. So now Michael takes off running through the house and goes to the front door and he's heading towards the mining shaft running full speed. And the tall man is walking after him. That's right, he's walking, but he's slowly catching up with Michael when he's running. It's kind of like another movie I remember seeing where these kids are at a camp and they're running for their lives, but this guy's just walking and killing them because he can just catch up with them by walking. Can't think of the name of it. And then the tall man delivers a great line right here. Now, I don't know if this is subconscious or if he's a ventriloquist, how Michael's even hearing this because they're not even in the same location. But nonetheless, this is awesome. I think it just adds to the absolute bizarreness of this flick. You play a good game, boy. The game is finished. Now you die. And then the tall man makes some tombstones pop up in front of Michael to kind of slow him down so the tall man can walk casually, I guess, and catch up with him. And then Michael remembers the, the saying of, no fear, don't fear. It kind of reminds me of another movie I saw where this girl turns her back on whatever it was that she feared. And... Nah, never mind. So he goes past the tombstones, and then he steps in some mud, and he starts sinking down the mud, and his hands come up, and they start trying to pull him down the mud. Kind of reminds me of another movie where this girl's running from this fried-up weenie-looking guy, and she's trying to run up these steps, and the carpet starts melting, and it like her feet start sinking down in it, and she can't get away while the bad guy's catching up with them. Again, I can't think of the name of it. Needless to say, Mikey gets out, and the lady in lavender is standing back there behind him, and Michael pulls out a knife, and he's not afraid to use it, but she doesn't do anything, so he just kind of sneaks his way around her. So when Michael finally gets around the lady in lavender, it's at this point that the tall man starts running after him for a change. The fact that you kind of see both the lady in lavender and the tall man really messes with your head, too, because they're the same, they're not the same, are they detachable? Don't really know. Again, that's what I love about this movie. But during the foot chase, Michael jumps over the trap that was set to catch the tall man. The tall man falls down the hole, and he's reaching for Michael, and he's got his foot, and it just ain't working out for him. And he falls down in the hole, and then Wiley Coyote, out of nowhere, just pushes some big boulders off the top of a hill, and they come and land inside the mine, forcing the tall man further down in there and covering up the hole. So now you've got the tall man trapped down inside of a deep mine. And then it cuts to Michael laying in his bed. And then he and Reggie are sitting in front of the fireplace, and Michael is telling Reggie about the tall man and putting him in this hole, and these rocks are not going to hold him there. 
And then Reggie tells him, this whole thing's been a dream. This has all been one big nightmare. The tall man's not real. Jody's been dead. He died in a car wreck years ago. And it even cuts to Michael going to a tombstone where it has Jody's name on it. So at this point, all of Michael's family is dead. They've all died. And Reggie's now his caretaker. So at this point, Reggie can really see Michael is really disturbed about all this. So Reggie says, hey man, go grab your stuff. We're just going to go take a road trip. So Michael runs upstairs to his room and starts looking around, gathering his stuff up. He finds a picture of Jody and he looks at it for a minute. And he swings the door. When he does, there's a mirror hanging on the back of the door. And across the room, you see the tall man standing in the mirror. And Michael sees the reflection of the tall man in the mirror. So he turns and looks at the tall man. And then... That's right, some hands come through the door, they grab Michael, and they pull him through the door. End credits. Another great way to end a movie. This movie left me absolutely devastated when I saw this when I was a kid. The hero, the person that I related to, the kid in the movie, gets knocked off at the end. At this age, I'd never experienced anything like that before. I think this movie is greatly overlooked, and it's never given its fair shake. I mean, a movie where a kid is being chased by a scary guy who can be in your dreams, and then it can mess with your head where you can't tell what's real and what's dream state. I, I can't do this crap anymore. Just go ahead and roll the stupid thing. first, Wes Craven made one of the greatest horror movies ever made. I'm not denying that at all. And I'm okay with that. But like I said earlier, I had never experienced horror like this in a movie for me at that age before, but I did again in the 80s. And the more I think about a lot of these scenes, they are dang near identical to each other. It had to be some sort of influence on Wes Craven. Even the end of the movie is almost identical to what happens in Elm Street. The boy wakes up, is told the whole thing is a dream, everything's set right, all the wrongs are right, everything's nice and great, we're gonna leave, and then he gets pulled through a door. How does Nightmare on M Street end? Girl wakes up, goes to school the next day, everything's hunky-dory, mom's sober now, goes outside, it was all just a big dream. They get in the car, the car is evil, and then the mom gets pulled through the door. Just saying whole lot of similarities. I mean, am I the only one that sees the parallels of these movies? Because to me, it's all the way through it. Even the cutting off the fingers and showing the hand again. I mean, come on. It's, it's there. And to me, now this is my opinion, to me, the tall man is the ultimate baddie. Sure, he doesn't wear a hockey mask or any kind of mask or he's not all burned and disfigured. He's totally comfortable in his alien skin. He wants to blend in. That's how he gets you. And I'm sorry, you take any bad guy from any horror movie and you put him against the tall man with the powers that he has, he's going to win every time. Literally, he can whip anybody. Anybody. And you really see that grow when you start going through the other movies in this series of how powerful he really is and how he controls time and dimensions and all that stuff. Even with Angus Scrim, who's playing the tall man, his health was getting really bad. They still were able to make you comprehend that he is all-powerful. He controls everything. 
the tall man's abilities are beyond anybody else's in the horror world. How is that that you ask? Well, he controls your dreams. He controls planets. He controls portals to other worlds. He's making dog meat of little town after little town until he wipes them all out and sucks them all dry. Then he just moves on to the next planet, not even thinking about it. He's never been beaten. He's gone from planet to planet. We're just a stop along the way. And the fact that he even controls time. He knows what you're going to do before you do it. And if he doesn't like it, he can go back in time and fix the problem, which you find that out later on in the series as well. The tall man is to the horror world what Thanos is to the Marvel Universe. It's that simple. But yeah, even Thanos would be jealous of these powers because Thanos has to get the glove and then he only wipes out 50% of the population. Tall man takes them all. And he likes to play with things for a while. He likes to let you think that you're winning. Let you think you're getting to a happy ending. That you've gotten rid of the bad guy. And then he just opens the door and beats you like Joan Crawford's kids. And a master of illusions as well. He can take form into anything. He's the total package. So show the man some respect. Hey Jason, what can you do? Well, I come back from the dead and I kill people. Oh good. Hey Michael, what do you do? Oh, I come back from the dead and I kill people. Hey, Freddy, what do you do? I kill people in their dreams. You know what? The tall man can do all that. And of course, I'm having fun with this. I mean, I hope you're not taking it too serious. But at the same time, the tall man's the real deal. To me, he's my favorite baddie. And I really think people don't give him props because he doesn't wear a mask or he's not burned up. I really think that's the big changing factor here is his presence isn't scary enough. But to me, real life is scary enough. So make sure the next time you're looking for an originator that created a mountain of horror icons, you gotta get the tall man respect. And you should always fear the tall man. And I love this whole set of movies, even with its flaws and its wanky stuff towards the end. I still love it. I love the concept. It scared me to my core as a kid. So it's always going to be a part of who I am as a horror fan. So you must have this one in your collection. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. This is 100% classic horror right here. And you have to give this movie the respect it deserves. You just have to. So go watch it. Go check it out. Get your copy out or go buy a copy of it. And sit down, turn the lights off, and enjoy this classic horror flick. This has been House of Wax. And we will check you later. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, how would you like to actually see it? Check out the House of Wax channel on YouTube and have access to content that will only be available on that channel. Don't forget while watching this, click that subscribe button down there at the bottom. That way you know when the next show is coming up. Also, don't be a jerk. Go check out Legion Podcast. You see the shirt right here where you can buy this very shirt, all kinds of other merchandises. Not to mention the incredible lineup of horror podcasts that are on that show. Do yourself a favor. Go check it out right now. So what you gonna do now?